Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about engineering sensibilities, as well as spherical chickens, perfectly buttered toast, and fishbone architecture. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 108, Engineering Sensibilities, May 12th, 2016. So, Jeff, are engineers made or are they born? Carmen, I had no idea. Cool. Episode over. <laughs> that was and <laughs> cut. <laughs> Sip of whiskey and over. Boom. <laughs> oh, delicious whiskey. Oh, I bet it is. You know, that's a, an interesting question. Uh, I thought about it from time to time. You know, how much is, is something we're born with and how much is the family we're raised with or the culture we're raised in or the schooling we go to. Um, I had come across an article not too long ago that was from Engineering and Technology Magazine, and they had an article called Natural Born Engineers. And they started out the first sentence, engineers think and act in distinctive ways. And so they go on a little later. So what drives an engineer? Stripped down to one core aim or value, you could say it is the impulse to make things that work or making things that work better. So why are we that way? Uh, was it, are we, were we born with it or do we somehow develop that? And uh, later in the article, they talk about uh, young children exhibiting engineering habits, you know, just naturally. Is there something in our schooling that drives us out of that? Uh, or why is it that uh, uh, some of us tend towards engineering and, and some don't? I, I have no idea. Do you, do you guys have any, uh, any viewpoint on this? I unfortunately think... I can see both sides of the argument mm-hmm. with respect to predilection to engineering um, because I can look back in my own life and a lot of my colleagues and say, I mean, in my own life, I was using, you know, power tools in an unauthorized sense and at an obscenely <laughs> young age. Right. And doing all sorts of, you know, potentially destructive stuff in terms of, hey, I'll take my bike apart this morning and when I'm eight and put it back together, fi- figure out how to put it back together this afternoon. And what are all these extra bolts for? <laughs> but right. how, I, I don't know how much of that is, is post hoc. I, 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 what I don't know, unfortunately is were there other people who were doing the same things that did not become engineers? And, you know, are there engineers who weren't doing similar things who weren't setting fires and, and learning how to solder at, you know, a certain age and ordering helium and neon gas bottles without their parents' permission really young. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in a family where my father was an engineer. So I, I was exposed to that constantly, but I don't believe you grew up in that type of family. Did you? No, I was raised by wolves. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my parents were in the uh, sales and the health profession, you know, respectively. And okay. I think uh, I was a little much. I think I was a outlier in terms of the familial uh, behavior as an adolescent. Right. So, so it wasn't like you inherited this. Or I'm sorry. It wasn't like you were taught uh, this behavior. This was something that sort of developed on its own. Uh, yes. Cer- that, certainly, what you weren't you weren't taught this by your parents. No, I was genetically destructive. <laughs> but that's. I mean, that's back to your question: Is it genetics or is it, you know? Is it something that's learned? And I honestly don't know. Yeah. Well, at, at some point, right, we, we start acting like engineers. And I, again, I don't know whether – I think I think for some of this, that probably starts at an early age. And for some, we get through all the way through engineering school and we get thrown out in industry. And then we see how other engineers behave and we go, hey, good. This seems pretty cool. Let's, let's do more of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And – I would also say I grew up in a, I think of us as hosts, I think I grew up at a very interesting time and also went to university in a very interesting time where, um, you know, I entered university in 1999 at the, almost the apex of the tech bubble. 
and I switched into computer science before switching into electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was to see people and experience the same curriculum with people who were there because their parents or others had told them this was a good career. You know, look at all the people who are getting rich in the technology industry. And it was a good, at least firsthand subjective experiment in people who were there for the money versus the real geeks. Mm -hmm. And my takeaway was there are people who are built to be engineers and there are people who can get by, but are not going to be happy and successful at it, which I know is controversial. But I think probably true. I don't know. I've been shot down plenty of times in Reddit threads for suggesting such a thing. And, and so what's the counter argument? What are, do people say, well, even though I don't like what I'm doing, it's okay. Yes. I think it's people who often see this purely as a money issue. So, um, the context for a lot of arguments that I have with people, not just on Reddit, but elsewhere is, you know, and I think I've said on this show before, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of STEM uh, outreach. Mm-hmm. I would like to see people who are not represented, who don't get exposure who or who are pushed out primarily, you know, uh, minorities and people who are economically disadvantaged get a better access to engineering. But I also feel as a general population, certain percentage of the population will go into engineering and the rest just don't want to do it. And you can't make enough money at it to justify doing it if you hate it. And uh, some people just th- – they just simply see you know the moderately ba- better dollar value that an engineer makes and say, hey, this is all about training, right? You know, there's no difference between – you know, somebody being trained to flip burgers versus somebody just being trained a little bit more to to do engineering. And, you know, yeah, you're right. Anyone can stick it out and get an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. But I think it's quite different to enjoy it enough to actually prosper in the profession. You just – you can't make enough to to get away with the fact that you hate what you're doing. <laughs> you know, what, what about the engineers who don't necessarily hate what they do? It's just not their – lifelong passion you know they don't go home and tinker away in the garage or you know spend all all night reading about some new technology they they clock in they do good job you know they get their work done they're good enough at it but then they you know they make enough money to live the life they want to live and then they go home so those people presumably exist and i don't know how much they do i mean i know that's an, that's an archetyped and I, I certainly know people who have gone through and are approaching retirement in professions that they got by at, mm-hmm. you know, because they had to make choices for their family and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I don't know a lot of engineers that did that. Um, and I think as you move up the scale in terms of the amount of, I guess, science and engineering work versus general management and, you know, management of a technology I think my anecdotal observations are that that pool gets smaller and smaller. I don't see a lot of really high-end engineers that just get by, you know, and are just punching the clock. And and do you attribute that to the fact that they've just burned out or that they have uh, just don't have sufficient skill to keep at it? I don't think necessarily that it's either. Okay. I mean, it, or it could be either, to be honest. You know, well, I mean, burnout's totally different than, you know, and again, I I say this, I think a lot of engineers, and let me, let me preface this with, I always say this, I think the the academic rigor required to become an an engineer of any kind is probably comparable to become a doctor Mm -hmm. or a lawyer. I would suck at both of those, you know, because I am capable of becoming both of those does not necessarily mean that I should. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think if I was in either of those professions and, you know, realized I got there by mistake, I'd have a tough time sticking around, you know. But there's so many stories that are the result of people's strange stories of how they got there. Right. But uh, 
I, I think it's too simple to say that people either burn out or they are all stars or they don't have any talent. I mean, it's you're, you're describing a huge spectrum, right? But but I go back to we we spoke with uh, Jonathan Way in a prior episode. We were talking mm-hmm. about spatial uh, reasoning, and he was talking about I believe he was the one talking about some people being more object. Uh, people as opposed to people, people, we, you know, some of us prefer working with objects, inanimate, uh, perhaps automated, but inanimate nonetheless, uh, objects and, and others enjoy working with people. And certainly if you're going into law, you can be sort of on either side, I guess, patent law would be a little more the objects and, uh, you know, a defense lawyer would be certainly more people oriented, um, and so I wonder if if that doesn't describe some people in engineering. You know, there are those who really dig into the details and want to do uh, nothing but uh, do development work, and there are others that prefer a little human interaction. And so maybe they want to go more into, you know, engineering sales or or you know application development or or something where they're working with people. And uh, those of us who are really you know engineering geeks on the design side or the academic side or the you know, the abstraction side uh, say, well, that's not so much real engineering. Yeah. I think whenever we jump into this subject, though, we should really split out the uh, the comments that are made about engineering from those who are not engineers, who are looking at this from a societal-wide uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let me jump in and say, that what we want to focus on in this episode are engineering sensibilities. Mm-hmm, exactly. Those things that make sense to us as engineers. So, Jeff, there's a great inflammatory quote, or quote, uh, I remember it being one of those listicles that existed before listicles in terms of how engineers see the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think early in the internet and, uh, you know, you're an engineer if blah, blah, blah. And one of them, I, I think if I remember correctly, you treat a chicken as a sphere in order to make the math easier. Right. Uh, I think that's applied to every STEM profession. Uh, exactly. And, and, but one of them really hit home for me. Mm-hmm. And I think also kind of uh, highlights my own arrogance on the subject, which is engineers look at all – Engineers look at everyone else's people who wanted to be engineers that couldn't cut it, <laughs> which I hear that and I realize it's a horrible thing to say. Yeah, it kind of is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's unbelievably horrible to say, but I'm also kind of, I think if I'm being honest with myself, I'm appalled at how much I agree with it, which is there's there's so much I love about what I do and I know that it's a rarefied circle to be able to both be able to do this, be trained to do it and then get the opportunity to do it. And I, I look at other people and I go who are, you know, going through professional careers, et cetera, having much different fights than I'm having going, you don't love your job anywhere near as much as I do. Mm -hmm. And it, the fact that I get to do science, get paid a lot for it, and everything that that means to me gets a really conceited and arrogant value judgment against other people, which I think reflects kind of what you're talking about, how I perceive myself as an engineer and in the world. I can also look at it and say I'm, an, I'm a jerk for thinking it, but. But I think, too, that's a that's a part of just growing up. I remember uh, somewhat early in my career having to take a personality test that, that was a, a, I think it was a DISC test, which was D-I-S-C, which I think is dominance, influence, steadiness, mm-hmm. and compliance. And I didn't score particularly high on the I part, the influence part. And those people who did were those like our sales engineer, right? And honestly, up until that point, I thought that those people that had to express themselves and were talking all the time and uh, thought through outward expression, they were just broken. There was something mm-hmm. wrong with them. And, and it took that test, that 
you know, the explanation of reviewing the results of that test and people tell me, no, this is how other people, whereas you, Jeff, do everything internally, other people need to express their feelings and, and they work through their situations talking to one another. It's like, you mean they're not just broken? I thought there was just something <laughs> wrong with these people. So I, I think that, that part of our uh, perceptions of others uh, can be modified over time just as we learn that, that there are people that are different from ourselves. Certainly my, my first year at college was a wake-up experience for me. It was like, you got to be kidding me. People actually think that. You can have these late-night discussions of, of how other people view the world, and you go, oh, my goodness, there are so many people that are thinking so many wrong things out there. I've got to change them. <laughs> and, and it takes you a little while to figure, no, maybe I have to change a little bit about the way I'm thinking about things. So I, I will also say as a appendix to what I previously said, I also believe that anyone who's in a profession like law, medicine, et cetera, would feel the exact or, – or music for that matter mm-hmm. – would feel the exact same way where there's – clear demarcations in terms of achievement and excellence in that profession. You know, right. there's a, there's a few part-time guitarists, but there's no real part-time professional guitarists or part-time lawyers. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that you, the people who are really good at it feel a vocation and feel a connection to what they're doing. That is above and beyond maybe a lot of their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say, though, that there's an element to our profession, which is the science side of our profession, I think, has really changed my perspective on the world along the lines of what you were saying about, you know, experiencing other people's perspective on the world, Mm -hmm. where I think in my early 20s, I had very strong beliefs about things that were trivial and were unknowable. As I got more and more into engineering and as I started work as an engineer and learned what it meant to know something, you know, in an objective way, in a scientific way, Mm -hmm. it gave me an appreciation for what it means to know something and also a humility for I don't know anything. (laughs) Like it was so hard for me to learn this one little bit in a way that this one little piece of the universe, this one little piece of the technology that the technological library that we've created and holy crap, there's a huge library and I don't, I shouldn't claim to have any special knowledge on anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It is humbling when you realize how much you don't know, but that's also unique to our profession though. A lot of other professions don't necessarily punish you in the way that ours does for imperfect or wrong assessments and uh, conclusions. That is part of the reason we have the perspective we do is that uh, if the bridge falls down, no amount of explaining – you just can't explain it away, right? Yeah, so, you can't you yeah. can't BS yourself out of that. <laughs> there, other professions allow a certain amount of wiggle room that, that ours yeah. does not. And I think every engineer, the first job they have when they're in that situation where the bridge falls down or the bridge stays up, learns an amount of humility that I don't know that a lot of other professions get. It probably creates more arrogance, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm always skeptical. I always find myself now after I've been, you know, burned a few times by being a little too cocky or whatever, you know, it's hard for me to say anything definite anymore. I'm like, well, you know. Given what I know now, it could maybe be one of these options, but I also could be wrong. Don't pin this on me. <laughs> How long did that take? A good two and a half, three years, maybe out of college. <laughs> well, it, it you know because you have to go through. Uh, you know, you're fresh out of college. You're you're cocky, and then you have, you have to work through a few projects and become not not a beginner, not uh, you know going through the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition here. I'm going to pull that one out. I'm going to be fancy today. Uh, you know, you start <laughs> Do you have off- to put your pinky in the air when you say that? I am indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, the Dreyfus model's got uh, – it's, it's a pyramid shape, you know, and you, you start off and you're a novice and, um, you, know, you know, basically nothing. Uh, then you, you become an advanced beginner. Then you're competent. Then you're proficient. Then you're an expert. And, you know, when you're – 
down at the novice and advanced beginner stage, you know, like we were saying before, uh, you don't know that you don't know anything. That that fits mm-hmm. into the advanced beginner if you uh, if you go through the reading on this and you have to work through those stages. And I, I think once you crest into competent, which for me I I'm comp- confident enough to say happened around two and a half three years of work when I got my first chip out of the way and you know I've been through the process once or twice. Um, you really see like oh I, I did not know anything and I still have very far to go. So I'm not going to make these bold claims that yes, I will, you know, over over deliver, uh, you know, come in under budget and over on features. I guess. <laughs> Do you feel that propagating into other areas of your life? Somewhat, yeah. Um, just I, I always shy away from making the plans because I don't want that on me. What if, what if the bridge falls down and everyone has a terrible night? <laughs> I don't know. I, like I find even in you know topics of politics or current events, I find myself hedging in the exact same way that I do with respect to engineering topics. Yeah, I can't where, say I find myself in too many political discussions, but I I think I do hedge my bets as well in those situations. Yeah. Adam, so d- in the civil engineering world, do you find yourself going through the same process of Humility. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of coming out of school, you, you think you know everything, and and it doesn't take long to realize, no, you don't know anything. Um, and it takes, you know, I'd say probably about the time I passed my PE is when I started to feel like I knew what I was doing. Um, and that was five years in your career, right? Um. Oh, sorry, two, year, two years or three years, and then you had your apprenticeship. Uh, three because I had a master's. So Okay. Yeah, three years in, I, I, I um, sat for the PE and, and got my PE, and, and that's where I was starting to feel competent. And since then, um, yeah, yeah, getting into some areas where I start to have some legitimate, you know, pushing on expertise in, in some, some small areas. Um, and, and building that confidence beyond to the point that now I am confident saying, again, saying something um, pretty pretty strongly, maybe almost arrogantly. Um, but I would also argue at that point, is it really arrogance anymore? If, if you are a legitimate expert, you know, um, you, you've, you've earned it. So I think where it becomes arrogance is, is this. And, and maybe this is my question for you guys. So there's the, is it the doctor's fallacy? I can't remember where, you know, you're the expert at something, so you believe you're the expert at everything. Yes. There's also <laughs> the, um, I, it's somewhat related. I forget what the, you know, the internet name for this is. But, you know, when you read an article in the newspaper and it's on your subject matter and you you pick out all the flaws and say this person doesn't know Jack and then you turn the page and there's an article by the same person, you know, in a, a totally different topic and you just read it as if it's all 100% oh, true. That's the, is that the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, is that one the Dunning-Kruger effect? I don't know. You're looking at uh, the internet. The internet controls. will... <laughs> the internet giveth and the internet taketh away. <laughs> Cognitive bias in which an unskilled person suffers illusionary superiority mistaken, mistakenly assessing their ability to be much higher than reality is. No, that's not the one I said. But that does apply to what we're talking about. No, I forget the name of it when you're, yeah. You, whatever it is, someone can correct us. <laughs> well, and I don't know how often you guys deal with uh with this but um occasionally dealing with the public you find somebody well there's two groups of people there's the people i have a driver's license i've been driving for 30 years i know more about this than you do hold on a second when dealing with the public i think you're now dealing with a specialty of your field yes (laughs) i've I've never dealt with the public (laughs) but i guess the public could be i don't know your customers well, so, okay. so, so no, th- this will enlighten us. I just, I just wanted to point that out that this is something that we don't necessarily experience, or maybe dealing with the with um, 
No, the public is a perfect yeah. example because the, the, the public, public is, is perfect yeah. example. I, I think there's other applications than the public. Um, but, the, you know, there are people who they believe that because they've been driving, you know, my specific example, driving for um, frequently longer than I've been alive, um, they know more about this element, which I've dedicated my life full time in my career to, to studying and knowing. So armchair civil engineers. Yes. And then you get the other group of people who they did some Googling, they figured out the right terms and now they know everything. Um, and may not, and usually do not have the, the body of knowledge behind it to properly apply those concepts that a 30 minute Google search can come up with. So Adam, did you remember to apply the derivative of that integral? Yes. Oh, that's what I mean. <laughs> I'll let that sink in. <laughs> Math jokes are great. So, so, Jeff, I'm curious as to how, you know, we're talking about feeling confident and, you know, hedging your bets when you talk. How do, how do you balance, you know, telling your students you must learn this spring equation when you know at a certain point, like, you don't understand the spring equation anymore because – Things get very nonlinear and whatever happens. Well, and Carmen, every teacher I've ever had perfectly understands everything that they were lectured on. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, maybe you guys went to the better schools up there in Minnesota. <laughs> exactly. So I, there is, for just about any subject, there is no end to the depth to which you can, you can go down the rabbit hole. You, you think you understand a subject. Uh, for instance, last week we were talking a little bit about steel, but we were talking about a very superficial level. And so anybody who's in that industry is going to know far more than we were able to, uh, to talk about. And somebody who is dealing with just certain types of steel, uh, you know, specialty steel alloys for a particular industry is going to, you know, know details about that. And there are those who are working on processes that, that tweak the characteristics of those steels that know far more about that. And there's, I suppose there's somebody somewhere in some lab that is the world's expert at, at some aspect of it. See Jeff. And I, I, I want to hear the rest. I would also like to say, I doubt it. And <laughs> I would love if somebody came on and told us all about steel. Continue. <laughs> uh, so the, I guess what I'm saying is, there is no knowing everything, right? Because everything's sort of interrelated and there's no knowing everything. Uh, and so the, the key is trying to provide, and it doesn't have to be students. I mean, we as engineers uh, have to communicate a lot with others. We're either dealing with, with uh, uh, personnel on the floor or our own bosses sometimes or other people in other departments, and we have to explain an engineering concept. And so the key is trying to explain the concept in terms that our audience can understand. And so if I'm dealing with, uh, say, juniors in, in uh, engineering, then it should be appropriate to them. They should, at this point, as juniors, they should know the basics of calculus, but I don't expect them to know uh, some, you know, some esoteric uh, mathematic uh, notation or, or, or concepts but I should be able to explain it in, in terms that they might gather. Now, if I'm explaining, uh, let's say, a, a Fourier transform, let's get through the Fourier transform. I'm not going to deal with all the conditions when you try to apply it in the real world when it works and when it doesn't work and modifications you might make. And, you know, there, there's a limit to what you can do. You just want them to gather at that time what's appropriate for them to understand. I think that's true even if we're work, you know, if you're dealing with, again, uh, somebody on the shop floor, somebody in another department. The the object is not to bury them under a bunch of detail or make them subject experts. It's to give them enough so that they can, you know, grasp to the next rung and keep, you know, up the ladder that they're working on, helping them to solve the problems they have in front of them uh, as, as opposed to uh, burying them in a mountain of, of your knowledge because that does them no good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you bring up a good point. I was actually in a, a situation just like that just this past week. Um, we had some customers in the lab in our office, and I was giving them some training on using my part. And it, it was good for, for both. It was a two-way street. You know, they got to see that 
we are very overwhelmed in our lab. We don't just sit around waiting for emails to come in so we could send them textbooks of information on what to do. And I got to see that, oh, yeah, these guys are actually making a gigantic product that has way more parts on it than just my own. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, keep in mind that, yeah, they can't be the power expert that I am, you know, using that expert term lightly. Um and it was – I did have to tailor, you know, what I was saying and I, I could see that they just needed to get our part working, understand it well enough to fix any minor bugs that might pop up as they keep testing and then, you know, move on to the next item on their list. So, you know, they would ask why I was doing a certain thing and, you know, I, I would explain like, okay, I'm, I'm still learning myself. I don't know if you want all the math behind it but – in broad strokes, this is what parameter we're adjusting, how it impacts the overall system, and you know why you want it in this range. And, mm -hmm. You know, it was it was actually pretty pretty fun. It was a good time. <laughs> As those, things, I love those moments. Yeah, we everybody left with a uh, a nice new understanding of the other one. Well, and I will go back to uh, the thing again that accommodates engineering sensibilities, and that is. If there was only one way to do everything, there would be no room for engineering sensibility because it would have no meaning, right? There'd only be one way to do everything. But in most engineering decisions, there is some room for expressing individual taste and preference. Uh, so we get some decision as to uh, either what functions are implemented or how, you know, how the bolt pattern is arranged or how we, uh, how we lay out the printed circuit board. I don't know for chemical engineers what chemicals we mix in. I don't know. We we still need a chemi to come tell us about that. But how big um, the warning stickers are saying this could eat your face. <laughs> uh, but we have some room for expressing individual taste and preference. And so, just as an example, let me share the 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 perspective of those who are close related to engineers but aren't necessarily engineers, and that is. There, there's a close working relationship there between architects and structural engineers. If you're a structural engineer and you're working with architects, you have to be sensitive to the aesthetic sensibilities of architects while you're still yeah. doing the same, <laughs> while you're, <laughs> while you're still doing the same job of making sure the, the building doesn't fall down. And so uh, <laughs> there is a large architectural engineering firm in Europe. I believe it's called Arup group, A R U P and I don't know if it was Ove or Uve or Ove Arup was the founder of it, but he was a leading uh, architectural structural engineer of his time. And he had this to say, he said, an engineer who doesn't care a damn what his design looks like, as long as it works and is cheap, who doesn't care for elegance, neatness, order, and simplicity for its own sake is not a good engineer. Now I would say that is, influenced by his profession because there are certainly certain engineering fields where all anybody gives a damn about is that it's, it works and it's cheap. They could care less what it looks like, but, but I will say at least his aesthetic sensibility was offended by those who would put up a building that didn't look attractive. Yeah. Well, I, I would maybe argue that attractive can be, um, not necessarily purely from an aesthetic perspective. I think it can be grown into into some other fields um, in ways, you know, uh, simple. It, it could it could be an application, or novel could be an implementation of attractive in in some other fields. Mm -hmm. Reliable. So sometimes it's nice. There's there's some common ground there in that, you know, we people generally like symmetry and, you know, to a first order, a lot of times symmetry is what you strive for in engineering too, whether it's because it's, you know, if we just make it symmetric, we get a nice cancellation of forces or, you know, the, the noise will couple onto both signals and cancel out, you know, and mm -hmm. you know, whatever. So, so you get a free pass for, for symmetry because mathematically it's pretty because it makes things cancel and your math goes easier, but it also looks good to the eye too. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, we should post a link to a great with respect to architecture and structural engineering and great Gizmodo article on. Can we please stop by? I'm paraphrasing, but can we please stop well, by? You must Fishbone? be. You said great, great Gizmodo article. <laughs> I, I actually, I was going to make the exact same comment. I think I, the only time I've tweeted in the past month was like uh, Gizmodo is clearly not interested in <laughs> in honesty or facts. But uh, there's a great article, I think linked to and paraphrased by Gizmodo. I should say it that way. Where uh, they were saying, can we please stop buying fishbone architecture from uh, Santiago Cal- uh, Calatrava? And it was a it was a little piece about uh, the guy who's designing the transit building that's attached to the World Trade Center. And I've heard vague claims that the transit center costs more than the building it's sitting next to. And he's a extremely famous architect who makes these fishbone like pieces of architecture slash art. Um, uh, I think the most famous one in the U.S. would be the Milwaukee Museum of Art on Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. and it's this article detailing like how impractical these buildings are. <laughs> they all look the same. Uh, same. They all have a very similar style. And they're also impossible to maintain and actually build such that virtually everyone who has commissioned one is also in the process of suing his firm (laughs) (laughs) because the buildings are falling apart. Ooh, that's not good. No. (laughs) Uh, Apparently the structural engineers have not done their job. No, no. So that's, it's to your, it's, it's to the discussion of the, you know, practical and the impractical and, especially the architects and the structural engineers having to actually make a piece of art and something that's aesthetically very pleasing, functional, and lasting. Right. Well, and I, I just will note that the uh, all the credit goes to the architect, right? The the engineers get relatively little credit for making the building stand, even though it's that's its main function is to stand and be a, a building. Yes, exactly. Well, and we tend to have a, a um, at least from what I've seen, arc, uh, engineers work for architects, not the other way around. Uh, I'm not I'm not in that field, but that seems to me also to be the way it is. So sometimes the the more arc, uh, the more structural engineering, the more the better engineering solution loses out to the uh, aesthetics, and the more complicated and well, I mean, it's like I'm sure is happening with the the example Brian brought up. The aesthetics beat the elegant, simple, maintainable engineering solution. Yes, indeed. Well, so if if there can be a even within that uh, fairly close working relationship between architects and structural engineers, there can be a an offending of aesthetic sensibilities. Right. Let me propose a means by perhaps we better understand why we as engineers often have our engineering sensibilities offended by what goes on around us in, in modern business. And to that end, I, I propose, I guess you call it a theory, but uh, it's, it's known as the cult of three cultures uh, that was introduced by Edgar Schein and Edgar Schein S C H E I N is the Sloan professor of management uh, emeritus at the Sloan school of management at MIT. And so he proposed that within any large organization, at least organization of sufficient size, there always emerge subcultures, and there are usually at least three of these. And those subcultures are the operational subculture, the engineering subculture, and the executive subculture. And so if you look at these, the operational subculture, those are people that focus on getting things done. And to that end, they value human interaction, uh, high levels of communication, trust, and teamwork. And they tend to be connoisseurs of human, quote-unquote, character. All right, so they're all about getting the things done. In contrast, the engineering subculture, which we as engineers would assume we would end up part of, focus on making things perfect. We value abstraction and elegant solutions and automation 
in well-crafted systems. Or the only things that matter. <laughs> the only things that matter. That's right. <laughs> and so a- as such, we are preoccupied with designing humans out of the system rather than designing humans into the system. Uh, and finally, the third of these subcultures is the executive subculture, and their focus is on making things profitable. And to that end, they value a financial focus and also a sense of rightness and being a lone hero, kind of being the cowboy that rides into town and cleans up the uh, trouble that's existing in the city. Uh, and as such, they are passionate about shepherding cash flow. So you can kind of immediately see that if the executive people are uh, focusing on on making things profitable, then they perhaps don't like the engineering focus on trying to make elegant solutions because they see that elegant solution is just being a waste of money. Uh, likewise, the operational people that are connoisseurs of human character and want to value human inter- interaction don't have a kind view of the engineers that are trying to engineer people out of the system. So engineers are stuck in the middle and the enemy of everybody. Well, I... <laughs> and the anointed ones at the same time. <laughs> well, I, so I don't know as they're the enemies of everybody, but I'm just saying there is a certainly a culture to engineering and there is a focus that most engineers have that is different than other parts of the organization. And so there will be some conflict there. I, I kind of focus once in a while, you know, to an extent at work, but also at home on making things perfect. So there's a little bit of bleed through there to my personal life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I strive to have the optimal mm-hmm. breakfast routine such that everything is hot and ready to go at the same time. And maybe there are <laughs> cooks out there who also feel the same way, but it's more of me like, hmm, I wonder if it'd work better if I set the microwave for, you know, 35 seconds instead of 40 this time. Right. To- toast has a terrible specific heat. It, it, once you butter it, it's cold almost immediately. Or if you don't butter it fast enough, then the butter doesn't get as melty as I like it. I, I dictate my, my breakfast around toast. I'll probably right. publish my results in the next month or two. <laughs> but, but for instance, let's say that uh, you've designed a product and then the executive portion of the company says, hey, guess what? We can make more money if we have three price points for this type of product. And so you've made a nice product here, Mr. Engineer. Uh, so why don't you just derate it a little bit and we'll sell that for a cheaper price point, <laughs> right? And, and as an engineer, you're going to go, there's no way you're taking this design and, and derating it. You're making, even though it can perform at a, a hundred units per second, you're going to make it perform at 50. And, and the executive goes, yes, we are <laughs> because we can make more money that way. Okay. So that's the sort of thing where, that's how you get the Celeron. Oh, yeah. I mean, that kind of thing does happen a lot. Sometimes you get it for free in the IC industry. You know, you have to set your parameters. Let's say it's a temperature sensor and it's got to be accurate to at least three degrees or whatever, you know. Then when you do your testing on all the all the ones, the highly automated testing that gets that stuff very accurate, you know, you find that you have so many that meet the three degree mark, but then you also have a nice little bump at plus minus one degree. And then maybe there's the ultra fancy ones that are like a 10th of degree. So you just keep <laughs> lopping off the top X percent and you can bin them differently and give them another part number. Right. You know, and you'll, you'll see it a lot. In, and sell them for more. Yeah. Timer boxes and stuff. Like you need to set a, an 80 megahertz, you know, square wave, bang, bang, whatever. You know, you can find a whole bunch of them on DigiKey if you start looking at, you know, RC timer boxes, sort of similar to the 555, but different different architectures. And you'll see the 80 megahertz max version for a dollar and the 100 megahertz version for a buck 25 and then the 250 megahertz version for $2. And the architectures are probably not that fundamentally different. It's probably all the same chip that they toggle an option off or on on and or they, you know bin it differently when they sort them. Mm-hmm. So at least in my industry, I get that for free. How do you make a uh, lower grade bridge, Adam? <laughs> you don't. They all have to be perfect. All have to be uh, to built to the same high specifications. Mm-hmm. Which around my house are unsafe to drive on? Is the other real is the real <laughs> question. Well, and I suppose that's a little slightly different. If you're, if you're uh, building a nuclear plant, you're building a bridge. It had better be of of top quality all the way around 
uh, at least safe for people to use. If you're if you're designing a IC chip uh, that people's lives are not counting on, well, then there are certain there's a certain allowance that you may be able to make that allows you to to create different price points. Yeah. How about you, Brian? How do you make different airplanes at price points? <laughs> How do I turn my Cessna into a seven forty seven? Is there is there a is there a trim option? Can I can I you know flick a switch under the hood? I am not going to say an answer to that that isn't inflammatory. Mm-hmm. That's just what big airplane wants you to think. No, unfortunately, that's why aircraft are really expensive. That Cessnas, unfortunately, <laughs> go through very certi- very similar certification processes to 737s. In safety-critical applications, it's like, which is the best pacemaker? They all better be the best pacemaker. That's true. <laughs> Don't buy them from a truck stop. <laughs> so I've heard. Right. So even within engineers, let's say that we can see how engineers have a disagreement with other parts of the business, but, but even with engineers, we can disagree with one another. Uh, back in episode 76, which was titled Creative Diversity, we talked about Curtin's adaption innovation theory, where we all sort of fall upon the spectrum of, of being more comfortable with adaption, that is adapting uh, things or modifying things slightly to how they're currently being done, sort of minor revision and maintenance, one might think of it as, uh, to the innovation, which would uh, we could also say a second order change. That is, we're making some mod- major modification. And so uh, certainly within the engineering community, we can either look down our nose or look askew at other engineers because they're only willing, let's say, to do minor revisions. Or we can look... Uh, to the other end and, and sort of be uh, bothered, offended by the, those who always, always, they want to make major modifications. They're never willing to make just a small change. They're always trying to throw the, the Hail Mary pass and make something dramatic happen uh, in the system. And so even within an engineering community, we can be offended by one another's sensibilities. <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably a little bit more on the cowboy side because who doesn't want to design something new and cool? But uh Yeah. What gets me the most is, you know, I'm totally fine. You know, as much as I want to design a new circuit, I want to do it on my time frame, and I'm also very lazy, so I'm totally okay with just revisions as well. <laughs> but what gets me is when there's like a, a circuit or a widget or whatever that's like demonstrably showing its age, and it's not terrible, but it's your clearly revisions are only going to get you so far, and you know when it, you know, you can't get that. Uh, to go ahead to go have a little bit of a science project going on to figure out what the next big thing is going to be to, to be a cowboy and come up with something new. Uh, that, that kind of gets my goat a little bit is okay. Any, anybody who can kind of see more than two, three, four years down the road is going to know we're going to hit a wall with this. So maybe, maybe we start heading off now until before the crunch time comes yeah, it w- but but it depends right on the business you're working for. Some companies favor that sort of cowboy culture, and if you're not willing to play that game, if you're not willing to step up and make the big bet, you're not going to fit in. Other companies, they'll shoot you down as soon as you as you even propose something that's that's even a little risky. You know, there's there's a lot to be said for slow and steady gains by trimming trimming fat and unneeded processes and tools that you don't need. You know, yeah, obviously it'd be great to to knock one out of the park and spend a bunch of money and be the first to market with a billion dollar idea. But you know, yeah, we saved ten k a quarter by uh, you know letting Joe Schmo work in his cube for a few days and come out saying, "Hey, we're doing this wrong." <laughs> obviously, vet his idea and phase it in, but you know, there, there's value there. That that ten k is going to be, you know. That that's going to go on forever. I don't know of anybody who reverts to less efficient ways. <laughs> yeah, the only point I'm trying to make is go back to the fact that every time that we do something new, those that are in the executive culture go, "What are they doing? They're spending lots of money and effort coming up with something new that's not tested, and there's no guarantee that's going to make us any money." Yes, I'm okay with making profit in not sexy ways. There, there's something to be said, you know, for going back and oiling the tools or, you know, whatever you want to expand to this metaphor here. That's all mixed now. All right. 
All right. Well, so so one of the groups that engineers most frequently run into that tend to offend our engineering sensibilities is marketing. I was going to say lawyers. Every, well, everybody offends me. Engineers in. So why why do engineer or why do lawyers piss us off? He said marketers, but it's cool. Uh, same thing. So let me share a quick story of the lost balloonist. It, it, this gets applied to various professions, but I will I will share it in terms of engineers and marketers. Okay, so a man is flying in a hot air balloon and realizes he is lost. He reduces altitude and spots a man down below. He lowers the balloon further and shouts, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised my friend I would meet him half an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The man below says, Yes, you are in a hot air balloon hovering approximately 30 feet above this field. You are between 40 and 42 degrees north latitude and between 58 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be an engineer, says the balloonist. I am, says the man. How did you know? Well, says the balloonist, everything you told me is technically correct, but your information is useless. And the fact is, I'm still lost. The man below says, you must be in marketing. I am, says the balloonist. How did you know? Well, says the man below, you don't know where you are or where you are going. You have made a promise which you have no idea how to keep and you expect me to solve your problem. (laughs) The fact is, you are in the exact same position you were before we met, but somehow it is now all my fault. I do like that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, sort of this ongoing uh, bit, again, we talked about those who like to deal with people and those who like influence tend more to be the marketers. Those who like objects, those tend to like the abstraction, tend to be more the engineers. And so... Uh, marketers tend to see engineers as caring only about the design and manufacture of uh, practical uh, products that lack any hint of sex appeal and who are unable to prioritize the requests of clients and buyers. Uh, To the marketing people, engineers are strange creatures who seemingly care nothing about closing business deals. So in references to this, I'm assuming I'm the only one who's watching Silicon Valley, right? I've seen the first two seasons, but not the latest one. I would recommend, so this is uh, May 2nd, 2016. I would recommend anyone watch in reference to this discussion, the second episode where the sales team strips out everything sexy about the product they're developing. And it ultimately, the, the end of the episode is them revealing the, like one of the engineers basically is a joke saying, are you just trying to get me to design a stupid, crappy silver box that sits in a rack server, you know, on the back of, uh, in the back of some warehouse? And he comes back and they've put that in a PowerPoint and that's exactly what he's designing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's life. Well, and, and I'll say to, to, to the other side then, you know, if that's how the marketers see us, then on the contrary, we see marketers as, as being... Uh, swarmy hucksters who will first ask for impossible product capabilities. And then regardless of what we tell them, turn around and promise those features to customers who will inevitably uh, be disappointed. And somehow that's all our fault. Oh, don't get me started. Why are you <laughs> describing reality, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just wanting to state the obvious to make sure that uh, I'm not the only one who sees this. Oh, yeah. But I, I thought you were supposed to point out some sort of, preconception that is then not reflected in the reality and then we would then grow from our mirror reflected reality that oh clearly the world is not that way i'm i'm just saying that the the reality of the world depends upon how you see the world and what you prioritize exactly and if you if you are prioritizing a neat well-functioning system that works well without people because it works perfectly under every condition because you designed it that way. By God, you're a great designer. You designed it that way. Then you will have a fight with those who want to work with other people or those who go, we can make a lot more money if you quit doing that, Mr. Engineer. And the lesson here is never give up the fight. That's why I always insist on proper validation. And I do. And I we do get that. But, you know. Maybe don't run to the customer the first time something even remotely looks like it's working better than we thought. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, and so uh, along these lines, I will, I will add a, uh, a Dilbert cartoon. It's from December 18th, 2014. And it's it, the first of three pains says the marketing guy. And the marketing guy says, I don't see why engineers get paid more than marketing professionals. And Dilbert says, maybe because engineers designed and built every important part of modern civilization. And all you did was misrepresent it. And the marketing guy says, my point is that you need both. And Dilbert says, <laughs> ah, you really don't. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So back to our original discussion about is engineering uh, learned or inherited. Mm-hmm. I was trying to describe the Dilbert cartoon to my wife. Um, the one about the knack. Yes. When my daughter took apart a whole bunch of things just to see where the batteries were connected, I immediately looked at what she was doing and goes, ah, the knack. And she was looking at me quizzically. Oh, she's going to be an engineer. She's got the knack. Thinking that this was common language that everyone else on the planet uses. (laughs) And then had to proceed to describe verbally a Dilbert cartoon, which is probably the least humorous way you can describe it. Yep. Yeah, well, isn't that part of it? You need to have sort of that engineering mindset for Dilbert to really sink in. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't the Knack uh, part of their their short lived TV show? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, hey, just cartoon. sit in front of YouTube. Here, watch a cartoon that you've never heard of in order to get a joke that I just <laughs> made. That's that's only funny to me. Exactly. Well, so along those lines, let me uh, let me offer a bit of translation. So, you know, when you run into this in the future, maybe you'll understand, you know, what's what's being said from one side to the other. Yeah, but, but yeah. And before you say that, uh, engineers out there, young engineers, never start a sentence with "Hey, stupid marketing guy." <laughs> right. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> All right. So, if the marketer says it needs more sex appeal, what the engineer hears is. I have no idea what I want. Now go do it. (laughs) All right. When the marketer says the market study we purchased, the engineer hears, we spent your annual salary on some charts illustrating common sense. Carry on. (laughs) Sounds about right. Treat the chicken as a sphere in order to make the math easier. Right. (laughs) Right. Now this works the, the other way as well. If the engineer says it's a program risk, what the marketer hears is, that sounds like work. If the engineer says it's technically infeasible, the marketer hears, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> Working with marketing sounds tough. It is. I'll just confirm that for you. And they're good. Here's, here's the best part. Uh, you know, We'll make fun of marketing all the time. Uh, and lawyers all the time, but marketing in particular, marketing and sales, that is a job that engineers should never be allowed to do. And it is something that you will not be employed unless you have really good salespeople. Ain't that the truth though? Yes. it's, it's as, as, as much as you hate them, every company needs the person that can go out and make it rain. Yes. And it's when you're in the situation of being concerned about how you're going to make your mortgage payments, that you really understand the commission-based sales system. And that does seem to be a motivating factor, right? Yes. Well, I mean, or even intra-organization. I'm not saying for yourself, but, you know, sales seems like to engineers like it should be replaced by the internet. And it's just not a reality. Um, That's not how humans work. Well, and and I've seen it recommended that, that if, if we're going to um, work well with marketers or others, uh, you know, a couple steps are, you know, you want to assume goodwill on the behalf of others. They're not necessarily evil people just because they see the world differently than you do. You want to use plain English. Don't use lots of jargon just because you're an engineer and you know the jargon. Seed authority outside of your areas of expertise. So, yes, you can argue the engineering matter, but don't get yourself involved in matters that you don't necessarily have an expertise in, uh, assume that every request is difficult, you know, in the same way that they go, we'll just, you know, punch a few buttons and make it happen. 
And that doesn't happen on the engineering side. You also can't say, well, you know, find out what your customers want. That doesn't happen uh, necessarily easily. Uh, you want to be forthright. Uh, you want to be humble. Uh, and you want to recognize the fact that you come from differing worldviews. So marketers can be worked with, as, as uh, Brian indicated, is extremely important to your continued livelihood that your company have good marketing and good salespeople to keep the money coming in. But that doesn't mean that we can't disagree with them from time to time. <laughs> uh. So as, as much as we may at times uh, differ with marketers and have a, a differing worldview, uh, there's some indication that uh, the marketing people are having to become more engineering-like. Uh, their world is becoming more technical. Uh, the fact that everything can be done on the internet and they have to uh, communicate uh, via the internet and their customers are more savvy means that they have to be more like engineers. But by the same token, engineers are having to become more marketers. Uh, that is, we can't just sit in our back office and do our design work without any concern about the interacting with the customer or what the customer's uh, viewpoint is on this. And and you see places, again, like Apple, where design engineers, you know, are, are uh, the leading technical voice and every, you know, the other Engineers have to be somewhat subordinate to the design decisions. And so there is some indication that engineers are having to become more like marketers and marketers are becoming more like engineers. Uh, so maybe our sensibilities will change over time. You're saying there's going to be a singularity someday in the future where we become a, a, a hybrid marketer slash engineer? Well, at the time, at the point that we, uh, we become the computer, right, which will become the internet, which will become uh, Skynet, uh, we'll know everything. And so then we can assume all, uh, all perspectives at the same time. Right. And so I guess that will make us, uh, that will make us executives because then we'll be omniscient. Yeah. That sounds about right. Terminator was really about marketing versus engineers. It was <laughs> absolutely. All right. I don't know how we came to that conclusion, but Hey, I like it. <laughs> right. Well, I'll bring I'll bring us home on a humorous note. Uh, okay, you know, ni nice ego check for us engineers out here. Recently, I was in um, DC and I was with some of my old roommates from college, and all of us engineers, and we went to one of those escape rooms. You know, where you get locked in a room and you have to solve puzzles and you have an hour to get out. Sure, and we did it. We got out with like two and a half minutes to spare, but but the woman who was running it, you know, uh, came back and she. She's like, you guys were the most frustrating people to watch go through that because we overthought each and every single thing. You know, we we unlocked a chest and got a candlestick and I was like, hey, there's something taped to the bottom of it. My buddy looks at it and he goes, yeah, it's probably an RFID tag. And then my other friend was like, <laughs> hey, look, there's some electronics like hidden underneath this shelf. We're like, oh, yeah, you probably got to put something on that to open a door somewhere. We said, yeah, probably. Let's keep looking. <laughs> so we burned a bunch of time doing that. Then we finally figure it out, get to the uh, the, the second room. And, you know, we look and there's, there's four switches on the wall and there's four of us. And we say, screw it. There's only 16 possible combinations. So we, we designate an MSB <laughs> and an LSB and we, we toggle through and we figure out a clue real fast and, we're going, going, going. Then we're getting hung up on like the last stage and can't, can't, we're, I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, there's no way time is like running out. We got to figure this out quickly. So we, we burn a hint from the, uh, the woman, you know, as we're sitting there like investigating this clue and she's like, you already used that one by not using it to figure out the switches. And we thought it was something new because we had never used it before. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a great way of what happens when you put four engineers together in a room and give them a problem to solve. <laughs> uh, right. Good, good stuff. Right. We overthought a few things and in hindsight, I feel really dumb, but it was pretty funny nonetheless. Well, it was a learning experience. Nothing to feel dumb about. Yes, it was. Uh, does that place now have a rule? No groups of only engineers. Uh, not that I know of, but maybe, I don't know. I just like that. We all opened the door of the room and we instantly went to a switch and then one of us pointed and said, MSB, LSB. And then we, <laughs> we just counted off in binary the 16 ways the switch could go. And, you know, I think we only got to like eight or nine before we found what way they had to be. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I suppose that we should uh, we should bring this episode to an end. Uh, I guess the the big lesson is that uh, we as engineers see the world in a certain way. We want to uh, improve it, optimize it, uh, systemize it, automate it, overthink it, and <laughs> overthink it sometimes. And um, sometimes that uh, puts us in conflict with those who have other worldviews. And uh, the good news is that's okay. Uh, we don't have to think like everybody all the time. Our viewpoint, our worldview allows us to do some incredible things, make some really neat designs, uh, allows us to change the world in ways that other people just couldn't do. But at the same time, we have to have some recognition that we're usually not in charge of the world and uh, we still need to uh, to let others uh, do what they need to do. So we, we have some money, we have some income, we have a salary that lets us uh, do what we love. Agreed. Here, here. I'll raise my empty glass. Huzzah. <laughs> All right. And, and to think we were almost done after the first 30 seconds. We should do that one time, just as, as a joke. Not on April Fool's Day, but just, hey, so Jeff, do you blah, blah, blah? No. Cool. And then just play the exit music. Podcast out. <laughs> Well, will we all drop our mics at the same time? Yeah. Someone, yes. yeah. Oh, this pop filter doesn't give me that satisfying clunk. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's call this one done, and uh, we'll get together in a couple of weeks and uh, do another episode of the Engineering Commons. All right. Bye. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Take it easy, guys. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.